The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the recent course, we've been shedding light on the various aspects and factors that impact CITES decisions, their processes, and implementing these decisions. In a world where the goals for legal trade in wildlife is to outcompete the illegal markets, trafficking, and crime cartels, a critical, and it would seem quite obvious, need is to understand the economic demand that creates the illegal wildlife trade and black markets. In all conservation efforts, we talk of economic benefits, from the economic impacts of wildlife on people, community buy-in into any given conservation project or program, to the value of wildlife, both dead and alive. And that brings us to today's conversation with my guest, economist Alejandro Nadal. Alejandro and his colleagues' work is the research and study of the economic values at play in illegal and legal wildlife trade markets, analyzing the ambiguity and the dynamics of various arguments of the trade models, and I put that in quotes, and importantly, these models' implicit assumptions from institutional arrangements and market processes to relative pricing, from a one-commodity world to competition and variety, and therefore the impacts on wildlife and the illegal trade and traffic, supply and demand, especially when we're talking about trade of endangered and threatened species and the products such as ivory and rhino horn, and how policy is, or shall I say, should should be shaped by the influences of the black and illegal markets in these products. So, without further ado, welcome, Alejandro. Thank you very much. It's nice to have you here. We had uh, our team on the ground at CITES, had a wonderful opportunity to interview you. So, listeners, please do check out that uh, short video. Alejandro gives an interesting perspective. He was at CITES as an observer and made a rather astonishing comment that uh, ec- ec- economics were not seemed to be at play in the policy and decisions that were being made at CITES. So uh, let's begin with just a little bit about yourself and a background, and then we're going to jump into this rather in-depth conversation. Uh, well, yes. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, I'm an economist. I do uh, research on both theoretical and applied Uh, economics at El Colegio de Mexico. This is a research center here in Mexico City. 
And I was an observer, as you mentioned, in uh, CITES in the uh, COP17 uh, on behalf of the Franz Weber Foundation and uh, several other organizations. And yes, I was a bit surprised to see that there was very little um, economics discussions in the in the deliberations of the of the conference. And I always remark that uh, CITES, which is the Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species, um, the T in CITES is for trade. And as you, as soon as you say trade, an economist will think about markets. So uh, this is why I find it surprising that there were now uh, economi economists and, and a very little economic discussion uh, at the conference. That, when I heard you say that in our interview for the first, the filmed interview, I was stunned. I thought, of course, this has to be based on some sort of economic model. In the video, you do a great under, uh, little understanding of charts and stuff and how this can be manipulated. So um, let's dig in here. I, my first question is, what is the basic rationale about legalizing trade in wildlife and wildlife products as you saw it at CITES and then in terms of the work that you do? Well, yes, the, the, uh, the literature on uh, legalizing uh, markets for wildlife species or in support of trade bans is essentially based on a very simple model uh, on uh, supply and demand interactions and I'm sure that everybody has seen somewhere these graphs where you have a curve that describes the evolution of demand and uh, another curve that describes the, the changes in supply to prices. And so this is the basic, uh, I call it textbook uh, diagram that is used for uh, first year students in, when they study economics. And it's used also, unfortunately, to uh, transmit a lot of ideas about policy assessment in many, many areas of, uh, of our discussions about uh, economic policies and uh, uh, the way econ e economies work. Unfortunately, uh, we all know that a model is as good as the assumptions that are uh, used to build the model. And the problem with these models is that they are uh, based on several very, very simplistic assumptions that uh, make it uh, make these models virtually useless for policy assessment. Well, so, yeah, uh, help yeah. us understand that. So, you had said, you, okay, in the example of a one commodity world. So we're talking rhino horn, and you had said previously that you know they're selling other things. So not only is that simplistic and under thinking it's a one commodity world, as you said. But does it also take into consideration the economic growth of the country or the people that are demanding these products versus the economic value of these products in, let's say, a vacuum standing alone by itself? Uh, no, these, these models basically, as, as you say, are uh, based on the idea that you are uh, analyzing a one commodity world. Uh, That's just not the way it works. Well, I mean, if we look around, we see that we don't live in a, in a one-commodity world. And, very true. Um, there are very, very few examples of firms in a modern economy that produce only one commodity. Uh, 
I, you know, I, I always try to think about examples and I say, well, maybe, maybe you have something like um, a utility operator. The only product or the only line of production of a utility oper operator is producing electricity to pump it into the grid and charge customers for that. That's virtually the only thing, the only product that they deliver to the market. But, but even the, that would have its complexities because you've got yes. alternatives, whether it's wind power or solar power or that's hydroelectric right. power. So even then, that's not a single commodity, right? That's it's a right. single that's use. Right. That's right. So okay. let, let me, uh, uh, this, this discussion is very relevant, uh, both in terms of the market in which a company is operating, as well as in the analysis of the individual firm that we are discussing. Okay. So the utility operator produces only one line, only one product. Let's, let's think of that example, okay? Uh, but you're right. Uh, once that product goes into the market, you enter into a, a different um, uh, world in which you have to take into account uh, substitute products, the way other utilities operate, uh, the regulatory framework uh, the, imposed by the government. Um, so there are a whole bunch of other items that you need to take into consideration. Okay, partial equilibrium models, which, is, which are the, the models that are used for wildlife uh, economics uh, analysis, uh, abstract from all of that. They do not take into consideration how other firms compete how uh, other products uh, may be uh, interacting with the one you're putting in the market. And in addition, when you return to the level of the firm, of the individual firm, they abstract from any other activity that the firm may carry out. So they only concentrate and they focus on the one commodity that you're talking about, which could be ivory or could be rhino horn or alligator skins or tiger bones or you name it. All of these um, analyses are based on the idea that the company, the firm that is operating it, and by the way, when I say firm, we're talking about either cartels or retailers, legal or illegal, it doesn't matter. From the economic standpoint, these agents operate like, like, a, a, like a company, like a firm. And, and this even applies to like the single poacher who is well, who no. is, is, is the bottom line, the person going out and being paid X to kill the animal okay, and then provide the product yeah. up to the supply chain. Right. It all depends. It all depends because the single, uh, the individual poacher would be uh, an isolated operator that uh, then sells the skin of the animal or the ivory or whatever to another intermediary. That could very well be the case, but it could also be the case that there is no such thing as, a, as, a, as an individual you know, freelance poacher, but that the, 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 the people that are doing the poaching are integrated with the firm. This is what we call vertical integration. Now, okay. All of these things are uh, abstracted from and by the models used in the analysis of uh, this wildlife uh, trade. So let, let me tell you something about the, the, the basic rationale, because this is a question that you asked at the beginning. What is the basic rationale uh, concerning the, the legalizing of trade in wildlife and in wildlife products? And that basic rationale stems from the idea that um, once you impose a trade ban, you create a black market. 
that is developed in response to, to, to the uh, negative uh, incentives, perverse negative incentives uh, that create high prices. You have uh, a demand that is stable uh, and a demand that is uh, inelastic to changes in prices. And by that, we mean that uh, even if the price is high, the demand will remain stable. This is the, the people like to point out to the case of, of ivory. Okay. And then the rationale is the following. If we legalize supply, if we get rid of the trade ban, we will have a stable flow of supply into that market. We will bring the prices down because everybody knows that when supply increases and becomes stable, prices will go down. And then we will be able to put the illegal traders out of business. Now, all of that, that's a basic storyline of the, the, the models and the, I would say, the, the, the discourse of uh, those who think that legal trade will uh, solve the problem for conservation. Uh, in other words, you will prevent the extinction of a species because once you bring the prices down, you bring the incentives for poaching down. And you not only get rid of the illegal traders, but the incentives to poaching disappear. So this is the, the basic storyline. Unfortunately, it is flawed on, on many, many aspects. A while ago, we were already pointing out to some of the, of the problems concerning the, the simplicity or the simplistic assumptions of, of the models that are being used. The fact that you uh, analyze the situation, this market, in, a, in the context of a one commodity world, which means that Everything else that happens in the economy has no influence in your market. Um, the, the other assumption is that the companies or the firms or the agents involved in this trade only operate with one product, and that is really a fatal assumption because uh, it has a lot of implications. We will go into some detail if you want to. Um, and uh, so the storyline is very, um, uh, how should I say, very... Um, simple, and, and I think the simplicity is the, it's the only attractive aspect to this storyline. Well, but I think a point that you, you made to me is that the key assumption here is that whatever happens in this market does not affect the rest of the economy and vice versa. And yes. the problems of that assumptions, what are some of the reasons, uh, the, the problems that come up well, with that you, kind of thinking? Yeah, well, I'll tell you right away. One of the one of the big problems is if I tell you that the price of commodity A is uh, decreasing, okay, uh, and I, I show you some diagrams or some data with some nominal uh, numbers there that the price is going down in in U.S. dollars, okay, but if I give you a, a constellation of other commodities related to this one. Um, in which the prices are going down at an even faster rate, then you can say that the, actually the price for commodity A is actually increasing in relative terms in comparison with these other commodities whose, price, whose prices are going down at a faster rate. So this is why, you know, we like to complicate things with relative prices, but I think uh, in a policy analysis, you need to take all of these things into consideration. This is astonishing. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I am understanding what you're saying and how complicated this is. And once again, it is rather mind-boggling that 
decisions at CITES, COP17, were not being based on more complicated model assumptions, as you've just pointed out. So right now, we need to step away for a break, but um, we're going to come back and talk about how these structures, these market and structures, why they're important and why they should be considered. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Alejandro Nadal. So in the first section, we were talking about understanding how the complications that it is the economics of wildlife trade and single commodity models is rather simplistic, especially when you're discussing trade in endangered species and wildlife products such as rhino horn or ivory or lion bone or tiger bone or wood. We're not talking only about mammal, mammalian products here. We're talking about all illegal trade in wildlife markets and how that affects the economics. So Alejandro is helping us understand this. And Alejandro, um, I, I guess what we need to get into now is these market structures and why they're important. And you'd come up with a, a really good analogy about corn. 
Well, yeah, this analogy uh, about corn uh, helps us understand the importance of uh, analyzing um, a series of markets or a constellation of products, as I like to call it, instead of using a one commodity uh, model, which is it's too simplistic. Well, it doesn't allow to understand the interplay between well, of how all these commodities work for, against each other and the firms, as you called them. That's right. In fact, you know, I think that the, the example of corn is uh, it's interesting because uh, a model for a one commodity world is useless even to measure the, um, the, the changes in prices, even to understand the sign of the changes in prices. You may think that the price of commodity A um, is decreasing, but in fact, if you analyze it with other commodities, as I said a while ago, it may be increasing. Let me give you an example of corn. When NAFTA came into effect in Mexico, uh, the price of corn uh, was dramatically reduced in the first five or six years. Nevertheless, in spite of this collapse in the price of corn, the output of corn, the supply of corn, increased. Now, this baffled a lot of economists. They just simply couldn't understand how is it that when the price of, of, of this commodity, corn, is going down, the supply increases. That goes against textbook economics and even, let's, let's call it intuition. And by the way, I think intuition is not a good friend when you try to analyze economics. Uh, economics is very counterintuitive. So they had no answer to the question, why is it that the supply of corn is increasing in, in the context in which prices are being reduced? And the explanation to that is that when you analyze the constellation of agricultural products in Mexico, you could see that uh, all of these agricultural commodities saw their prices collapse as a result of the new trade regime opened up with NAFTA. But they, uh, they saw their prices go down at a faster rate than in the case of corn. And from that perspective, the price of corn in relative terms was increasing. I know this may sound a bit confusing, but if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So if you want to measure the price, how will the price of ivory or rhino horn or tiger skins is going to be changing, you have to take into consideration a constellation of prices and understand what is the relation between the rates of change uh, in order to, um, to, to unravel the, the real, uh, the sign of the change in, in prices. So this is something that the simplistic partial equilibrium models based on a one commodity world are unable to do. So that's, that's only one of the big problems, but there is another, and you just uh, mentioned that, which concerns the problem of uh, market structures. And so yeah, so how do, how does this how do market structures end up influencing, as we talked about in the first section, the individual firms? Why are, is this multi-product uh, landscape, so to speak, of plants and the product and right. the firms important in the context that you just explained to us? Right. Well, when you analyze a market, any market could be the, the, the market, the global market for ivory or the market for semiconductors or you name it. You have to look into uh, two different dimensions. OK, the, 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 the first dimension, uh, which is at the market level, 
pertains to what we call market structure. So here you're looking at the set of firms or agents that operate in the market for ivory. We need to understand, uh, first of all, what is the degree of concentration? Uh, do, are, are there some very big firms that, that uh, control, say, uh, 50 or 60 or 80% of the market? Or is this a market in which you have, you know, uh, thousands of little retailers operating um, in a market in which they, cannot, they do not have any market power? Uh, because you would immediately uh, think that the big players will have some kind of market power in terms of manipulating uh, price formation uh, dynamics. Uh, they will decide when to outcompete the little guys or when to tolerate their presence because it's not a problem for them. It, in some cases, it might even be convenient for them, etc. So you have to look at the structure of how the market operates. So this, this includes cost structures, no. right? So well, as, you, as what you just said, a, a large cartel and, and versus the little guy, this brings in cost structures and what is kind of important to this conversation in terms of right. illegal wildlife products, who can outcompete who and yes. who can absorb Okay, well, so this, this concerns one of the, base, the, the, the basic things when you look at, at market structure is, first of all, uh, size distribution of firms. I want to see who are the big firms, the medium size, and the small firms. Uh, do, how do they compete against each other? So this is, we're looking at the level of the market, and I want to see how um, uh, General Motors competes with Ford Motor Company. And I want to see how, um, because this is important, because if I introduce uh, a legal trade for ivory, I need to understand what are the channels of competition in this particular branch of economic activity. Right. Okay? So we also need to understand things like um, what are the barriers to entry in this, in this uh, market? This is a very old discussion uh, in economic uh, analysis. Uh, if you want to go into a, a given industry, you need to understand if you need to have a huge, you know, uh, investment in, in establishing a petrochemical plant or, you know, a huge manufacturing um, entity. You need a huge investment for that. Right. that. That may be a barrier to entry. I don't have, I don't have the resources to go into manufacturing uh, cargo ships, for example. Okay, but there may be other cases in which the barrier to entry is not the big initial investments, you know, the, the down uh, payment that you have to make to get in there. Right. But it may be that you need to invest billions of dollars in advertising. Take the tobacco industry. I could go into manufacturing cigarettes tomorrow, but I will need to invest billions of dollars in advertising to get my brand, you know, in a, in a good position in the market. So that's a different barrier to entry. In other cases, I need to have, you know, a marketing channel. I have a, a great distribution for, this is typical of, of uh, junk food producers, for example. They produce, you know, potato chips and they're sold all over the territory. Okay, well, having control of that marketing uh, network is another big barrier to entry. So these are things that happen at the market level. We have no information, zero information on 
the ivory market or the rhino horn market, or by the way, I think any other uh, uh, wildlife product market, there are very, very little studies that even sort of, you know, approximate, uh, you know, the analysis to this kind of consideration. And it is crucial. If you want to legalize trade, you need to understand market structures. So number one, the degree of concentration of market power. Number two, the barriers to entry. Number three, the channels of competition in that market. And those are just, you know, three examples that I'm thinking about. But that is one level of analysis. And the other one is what happens at the level of the individual firm, which is another uh, world, another dimension, which is crucial to understand if you think that your policy is going to lead to uh, putting the illegal traders out of the market. Okay, so um, obviously, listening to you, there's been very little research on the economic side for the demand of these products and the market structures that you've just enlightened us to. So do we know that the wildlife markets for ivory and rhino, there's many organizations out there like Wild Aid working on reducing demand. If we can stop the demand, then we can stop the killing. That's their their motto, whether it be rhino or elephant or any other wildlife product. What kind of research, and I, and this is a lot of what uh, you do at, at in your colleagues at in, in, under, under your firm, mm-hmm. is study these markets. So when you got to CITES, you realized, what, that there's been no research on supply and demand in these products to understand how a legal trade would work? I'm afraid that the answer to that question is that, yes, I was amazed to see that there is no research, uh, no serious research on um, the structure of markets in, in, in uh, that we're considering for, or CITES is considering for maintaining a trade ban or legalizing trade. And, and let me really emphasize the, 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 the issue about market structures. Why are they important? And they are important because uh, if the rationale of legalizing trade is that once you increase supply or you stabilize supply, legalize supply, you have reductions in prices. If that's the storyline, as I said at the beginning, well, you need to understand market structures because price formation varies from one market structure to another. In the case of a market where you have big players with important market power at their disposal, this automatic connection between increasing supply and reducing prices may not be uh, forthcoming. You may increase supply, you may reduce the cost of, of, the, of the inputs used in this line of production, and yet you may not necessarily end up with a reduction in prices. This outcome depends on market structures. Now, there are no analysis of market structures in wildlife trade. You can check, I, I, we've checked the literature and you have 30 years, three decades of discussions on trade bans and legalizing trade without an analysis of market structures of the markets that exist. Okay, so in the example of at COP17, they wanted to legalize rhino horn trade. And this is coming from South Africa where a lot of farmers breed rhino, have cached rhino horn, and want to introduce this into a legal market when there is already 
um, severe problems with the illegal market and the crashing of the of a species. So help us understand how that applies to the question that came up of a legalized rhino horn trade. Well, once again, I mean, uh, and I, I know the literature, I have reviewed the studies, uh, some of them commissioned by the South African uh, uh, government. I made a deposition uh, before the Committee of Inquiry at, in Pretoria, this was a year and a half ago, uh, concerning the idea of legalizing uh, rhino horn uh, trade. And I posed all these questions to the people in the committee, and by the way, there were several conservation economists there, and uh, they had no answer, and I, and I told them, this is really interesting, you folks want to legalize uh, rhino horn trade, and you know nothing about the structure of rhino horn trade. Really, you have absolutely no idea if it's concentrated or not, which is really the most basic question that any um, economist could ask about a market. And does that matter where yes, it's has, concentrated? Yes. Yes, because if, if you have a structure that conveys market power to some of the big players, then your idea of reducing prices and out-competing the legal traders may not be forthcoming. This is the, this is a crucial thing. The, the, the rationale of the model says that when you increase supply, prices will go down. Well, that's not automatic. It's not guaranteed. This is textbook economics at its worst. Um, so, if you want to venture down the line of a policy which is based on a free market or a, or a legalized market, you better understand what the structure of that uh, branch of economic activity looks like. Otherwise, you may be walking into a strange ecosystem when there are a lot of predators and they may eat you alive. I liked your word, you, use of the word ecosystem because... We tend to think of ecosystem as an or- organic landscape, um, right. where here it also means economic system, yes? That's right, absolutely. Okay, and, very and- interesting. So if the demand, let's say in the case of rhino horn, is particular to one area of the world, I'm going to say Asia, uh, Vietnam, uh, uh, for rhino horn, and we can supply uh, a ready supply of rhino horn by farming them. How is this going to affect, uh, in terms of what you just said? How does this skew things? Okay. How do well, you how do you provide an ever? I'll tell you what we're gonna we're gonna stop here because we're at sixteen minutes, and I'm gonna lead in with that question. So we're gonna continue this discussion in the next section of how demand affects. Uh, the market structures, and we'll use some of the examples of rhino horn and ivory. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa 
and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back, Ellie Weiss. This is Our Wild World, and we're talking economics of the wildlife trade, legal and illegal, with my guest, Alejandro Nadal. So in the first two sections, we got a good understanding of how ambiguous and assumptions that are being made in terms of markets for these products, and without a real deep understanding of the economics of how these markets work. So... Alejandro, we've looked in the first section at a one commodity market, but what about the individual firms? What do we know about them, and why are multi-product plants and firms important in the context of what we've just discussed? Well, you know, the, the, the models that are used to uh, justify legalized trade um, depict or describe the uh, firms that operate in these markets as single product firms. And this is um, one of the main features of these models is that, you know, the, the firm that we're talking about only engages in the production of one commodity. Now, there are, uh, we said a while ago, there are very, very few examples of uh, firms that operate uh, in, in that fashion. Uh, 99.9% of firms in a modern economy produce a multiplicity of products for one simple reason. There is something called economies of scope, um, uh, which is a, a crucial aspect of the operation of a firm. Economies of scope are analogous to scale economies, uh, but they refer to the fact that when you produce uh, uh, you know, product A and product B separately, you have the cost of A and, and the cost of B, 
um, in their different plants in which you are producing these two commodities. But it makes more sense to produce them under the same roof at the same time because the cost of producing these two commodities together is lower than producing the same quantities separately in, in two different plants. Okay. So, so another yeah. good market example would be, let's say, just taking out their Johnson & Johnson would be the exactly. head corporation. They make soap powder. They make um, exactly. uh, cleaning products. They make other things. And other companies like potato chips and all of that have come under their one heading. So, exactly. Okay, exactly. got it. So the crucial thing here is that um, the, the profitability of a multi-product firm does not depend on a single product. It depends on the set of the, the, the scope. This is why it's called economy of scope. The scope of products that it is able to deliver to the market. So the profitability of the company in relation to product A, let's say ivory, for example, is not the crucial variable, it's not the crucial parameter for decision-making inside the firm because the firm can very well subsidize the loss of profits, say, if the price of ivory would, you know, manage to go down, the loss of profitability in that line of production could be subsidized by the profits that the company makes in other things, which could be other wildlife products or, or alcoholic beverages or arms or uh, drugs, you name it. So, so in, in other words, they can absorb the economic hit of, of loss of selling one product. Yes. Let's say people choose not to buy that one thing anymore because right. um, social networks have said, don't do this. But they can afford to absorb the hit and put their resources into scaling up something else. Which means that they can withstand a protracted oh boy. price war, which, which means that the basic storyline, going back to the storyline about legalizing trade, uh, you know, again, you can see it's, it's uh, seriously flawed because, you know, the idea that if the supply goes up, price will go down and you will outcompete these guys. Well, not necessarily, even, even if the price goes down. Okay. Even in that case, these firms, these agents may withstand that pressure, that pressure for a long time. This is really important. Let's take elephant and ivory. You cannot get ivory from a live elephant. So if a cartel can absorb the hit of a reduction in the demand, and we're going to get into demand um, in a little bit, um, if they can absorb the reduction in demand of ivory, they can turn their efforts toward rhino horn where you don't need to kill the rhino. You can upscale breeding in rhino and fill that gap with rhino horn if there were a legal trade. Did I understand this well, correctly? That's, so that's a hypothesis. I mean, they, they could either go into rhino or, or tiger or drugs or trafficking in, in people, you, know, you name it. But the species can't survive it. Like but elephant, exactly. you can't breed elephant. Exactly. So, so that puts that, this price war back onto the living being, especially exactly. when it comes to wildlife trade versus exactly. some plants or other commodities that we can continue to create. Exactly. So this, the, okay. the whole question about, about the, these models is that they say we will outcompete the, the illegal traders. Uh, and the question here is, is well, uh, how soon are you going to be able to do that, even if the price goes down? Because these guys can withstand the pressure for three, four, five years. Who knows? 
the question is, we don't know anything about, about what happens at the market level, and we don't know anything about what happens at the individual firm level. And you will see, you know, dozens of so-called market surveys on ivory, rhino horn, and many other wildlife products that simply have no answers to these questions. What happens at the level of the market? How do these firms interact with each other? And what happens at the level of the individual firm? What are the cost structures, the, the level of, of, of vertical integration? How many products do they, you know, do they produce? Um, what are the locational advantages? We have no answers to these questions. So this is, I am um, adamant here saying, you know, CITES should have had a branch of economic analysis three decades ago, doing a lot of work that has been done for any other commodity in the world, you name it. We know, you know, we know about market structures and individual firms for things like the global shoe uh, market or semiconductors or airplanes or apparel, you name it. Why can't we do this for wildlife products? You make a really good point because in all of these um, items that you said, products that are not wildlife living resource based uh, any business plan has to take into consideration everything we've just talked about the cost of running your business versus the supply of the resource so some things that are completely synthetic okay we can make it puts a demand or a problem onto the planet but in terms of living beings and wildlife products pieces of animals this is really critical so, do you, did you come away um, from CITES think, with an understanding or a hope that CITES would begin to include market understanding? Uh, I don't see that uh, going on right now. I, I see that, you know, um, the message that uh, we put across uh, – was taken up by a lot of people. They listened attentively, and, and I think a lot of people said, you know, this, this makes sense. We need to, to have, you know, deeper understanding of, of market structures and dynamics, etc. cetera. Uh, but at the same time, when I look at the way traffic operates, for traffic is another organization that should have a branch of very serious economic analysis looking at these questions. And especially, uh, and, Mike, the monitoring of illegal killing of elephants. You well, would think that would be uh, a, a, a key point. Well, Mike, Mike is, is not designed to, uh, to allow us for understanding of market structures. It's okay. just a monitoring uh, tool, which is uh, very important. It's useful. It's, 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 it's okay. It's out there. Uh, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't be these, these traffic and Mike wouldn't be but, the place to supply the raw data that well, you would need? Is, well, the thing is that Mike provides some raw data. And, okay, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, the usefulness, etc. I, I think it's, it's fine that we have those numbers. Uh, but we, that doesn't tell us anything about how the market operates or how firms uh, act within these wildlife uh, trade markets. And the same goes with traffic. But traffic should go into the direction of more analysis. And certainly the Secretariat and CITES should have a branch doing this type of analysis. If you look at FAO, for example, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome, well, you know, there is a wealth of studies there looking at market structures for different agricultural commodities, fisheries, etc. Well, I think CITES should have something similar going on. 
And it's, it's, it's amazing that you, you're talking about policies related to trade and markets without any economic, serious economic analysis. It seems like, pardon me for the simplest, a no-brainer to me. I'm really stunned that there isn't an economic arm of research data and economists at CITES. So um, perhaps this is why illegal markets have been able to thrive over the past several years and the poaching crisis for elephants and the industrialized farming of rhinos and uh, lions have been able to come up and be sort of normalized in something abnormal being normalized. So where does the demand side fit into this? Well, that's another important aspect of, of, the, of, the, uh, of this uh, problem that has not received uh, attention. We do not have studies today on what economists call price elasticity of demand. And I know that that terminology, you know, uh, you know, gets a lot of people nervous. What it means is that we do not have information on how demand changes in response to changes in prices. Now, if you tell me that the price of a given commodity is going to go down as a result of legalized trade, the next question is, what will this do to demand? Because textbook economics tells me that when the prices go down, demand will increase. We have no serious analysis, no surveys, and these, these are things that can be done very easily. We don't have surveys on the price elasticity of demand for any wildlife product. I, we haven't seen that in the literature. There may be some isolated case studies, uh, you know, in relation to uh, snake skins or, or, you know, python skins going into the European market for uh, belts or, or, or uh, shoes or things like that. Uh, very isolated cases. In general, we don't have anything uh, looking, you know, resembling a serious study of, of demand in uh, rhino horn uh, or, uh, or ivory. And by the way, people may think this is very difficult to do because some of these products are illegal. For example, rhino horn. Okay, well, you know, <clears throat> in the United States, you carry out, the U.S. government carries out a survey, a nationwide survey with a random sample, which is excellent, on drug consumption. And the information is very robust, is very good quality, and these substances are illegal substances that carry out, you know, very, very strong criminal penalties. And even though you have the situation, you have a lot of information that is generated by uh, demand surveys. We don't have anything of the sort in the wildlife trade, which is another, you know, it's another amazing gap uh, in in uh, in the analysis and, and the information that we need to carry out a a useful policy assessment. Well, we have we have an example that could be drawn from when CITES did allow the two one-off sales in ivory. At that point, elephant poaching had gone way down, and then they did the second sale, and all of a sudden it took off. So this is this highlights the importance of what. Alejandro is telling us. So we do have these two historical examples. So one would hope that CITES would use the research from that and what's going on currently with the uptick in poaching that flooding the market with ivory did not reduce the the demand. In fact, it increased the demand. Well, the other thing is that, you know, the, the relation between supply and demand should not be seen as 
you know, these are two different entities. They work together. This is why companies invest in advertising and you develop a market. So the idea that you have a, a demand and and all of a sudden, you know, we inject this commodity into that market and, the, and these people will come and buy it. Hey, I develop a market by investing in marketing networks, advertising, uh, finance, for example. You don't have money to buy my product? Don't worry. I'll lend you the money. So you know, we don't know anything about what is the relation between supply and demand. And certainly, coming back to demand, we simply do not have things that any, you know, in any business, it is very standard practice to know what is the pulse of the market. You carry out surveys. And the, there are companies that do these surveys. They have a sample in the population, a random sample, very good, refined. So the data you will generate with these surveys is very, very uh, trustworthy. This is very robust data. So the, the fact that, you know, CITES has never commissioned serious studies about um, demands, serious surveys on demand, is another uh, very, very serious uh, defect in, in its operations. And you also had, had mentioned earlier in a conversation that frequently the cost of a product may increase because of new inspection and monitoring, monitoring activities and the effects these would have on the market. Well, so going yeah. back in, in terms of the advantages and the disadvantages of using market-based policies in wildlife trade. That, that's correct. I mean, the idea that, you know, when, once you use a market-based instrument, uh, a lot of costs disappear, that's not true. In fact, you maybe you need new inspectors, uh, more monitoring activities, and in fact, you may open new avenues for corruption. You know, the idea that a market-based instrument is automatically uh, gets rid of, 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 of um, corruption is totally inexact. It, it, is, it, it doesn't hold any water by itself. I mean, you know, it, there, there could be examples in which this, this could be the case, but there are others in which this is not the case. So in, in terms, unfortunately, we're almost out of time today. So in moving forward, at, let's say until COP18 and all the issues that were brought up at this CITES and everything we just talked about today, what would be your suggestion, your advice in understanding the economic, the importance of economic policies and the analysis and, um, you know, the part of macroeconomic policies? So well, very, yeah, very rapidly, I would just say we need, you know, we need to get our act together. We need to fill in the gap. We need to have uh, serious studies with an industrial organization perspective of what happens at the market level, what happens at the level of the individual firm, and what goes on with demand. We need to integrate these three dimensions, the market the firm and the demand side of the equation, together in uh, you know professional studies on how these markets really operate and, and uh, stop relying on these very simplistic textbook uh, models that are virtually useless and they have been theoretically discredited for a long time. We also have to look at economic policies. Uh, you mentioned macroeconomic policies. Uh, we need to look at sector level policies, especially in agriculture, but we also need to look at what fiscal policy is doing to communities uh, that work near the resource base, the natural resource base. Uh, we need to understand that uh, if we want to look at policy options and alternatives for, uh, for communities. 
And, and this is very critical in conservation as we implement on-the-ground projects and their economic benefits to the people who live with wildlife, to the large economic scope that Alejandro has been talking about, and economies of scale, of scope and scale, of how this is all going to work on the global level. So we definitely need to start thinking in more economic terms about wildlife illegal and legal wildlife products and trade in that unfortunately we're out of time this is a fascinating discussion i would love to learn more maybe we can come back and talk about this some more in terms of way forward of course thank you very much that would be great so unfortunately we're out of time thank you so much alejandro and for our listeners this is something to consider and gives you a way to implement and perhaps focus your efforts in helping to protect and conserve our wild world thank you this is ellie weiss thank you again for joining us this week Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 